This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guests are Deepak Chopra and Marilyn Schlitz. Deepak Chopra is the founder of the Chopra Foundation and the Chopra Center for Wellbeing. He's a world-renowned pioneer in mind-body medicine and personal transformation. He's authored more than 80 books, published in more than 43 languages, including 22 New York Times bestsellers. Marilyn Schlitz is a social anthropologist, award-winning author, and charismatic speaker who's been a leader in the field of consciousness studies for more than three decades. With Sounds True, Marilyn Schlitz has written a new book called Death Makes Life Possible, Revolutionary Insights on Living, Dying, and the Continuation of Consciousness, a book for which Deepak Chopra has written the foreword. Deepak and Marilyn have also collaborated on the creation of a new film called Death Makes Life Possible, in which the two bring together a wealth of teachings and practical guidance on how to turn the topic of death into a source of peace, hope, connection, and compassion. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Deepak and Marilyn and I spoke about the continuation of consciousness. What survives death? Is there any type of individuality that survives death? We also talked about the importance of pluralism and what Marilyn Schlitz calls worldview literacy. We also talked about the underlying reasons that death is a taboo topic in Western culture and also how that's changing right now as we embark on what could be called a death awareness movement. Here's my conversation with both Deepak Chopra and Marilyn Schlitz. To begin with, I'd love to know for each of you what your inspiration was for becoming involved in the project, both the book and the film, Death Makes Life Possible. What was your inspiration? My inspiration uh, was my continued fascination with the phenomenon of death. It began when I was about six years of age, uh, when my grandfather died suddenly. Subconsciously, it uh, motivated me to go to medical school so I could look at a dead body. Um, When I started medical school, that's the first lesson, anatomy. And uh, then, of course, as a physician, I encountered death uh, many times every day. So um, I was fascinated by the phenomenon, and I... I concluded um, that death did make life possible. And that was the seed idea 
behind this movie when Marilyn first showed me some uh, some uh, cuts in the beginning. And then for me, it was um, you know similar personal life experiences uh, as a 18 month old toddler exploring the world and discovering a can of lighter fluid, which ended up putting me in and out of intensive care for about three months and. While I don't remember that, I think that, you know, as Deepak mentioned, the idea of the unconscious, there was something planted there for me, both in terms of my reverence for health and healing practitioners and my, you know, deep appreciation for that work, but also for this kind of semi-permeable membrane between living and dying and what might come next. Um, in terms of the years that followed and sort of my interests from a career point of view, uh, I've always been interested in consciousness and sort of the furthest reaches of our human potential. And clearly the idea that our consciousness may be something more than just the byproduct of our brain and that it may actually help us to connect beyond our physical realm in ways that you know, may look like the survival of consciousness after bodily death. And then I uh, was also really interested in transformations in worldview and transformations in consciousness. How is it that people make these kind of fundamental shifts in their models of reality? And, you know, so for about 20 years, I was collecting stories and uh, conducting interviews and surveys and research on uh, consciousness transformation. And obviously, the big transformation is death and what happens after. And so I had started... Uh, video recording interviews with scientists, health practitioners, uh, people who'd had mystical openings that gave them insights into, you know, something beyond the physical. And uh, I had the opportunity to be co-teaching with Deepak. He had the the inspiration after seeing some of this video footage that we should make a film. And uh, who wouldn't want to make a film with Deepak Chopra? So <laughs> it seemed like a really good idea. And and then as the film was progressing, uh, I began to really see, you know, more strands, more depth. And, and so that led to the book and led ultimately to this project and this phone call. Now, the subtitle of the book is Revolutionary Insights on Living, Dying, and the Continuation of Consciousness. And it's that last idea, the continuation of consciousness, that I want to talk about right here at the beginning of our conversation. How do you both see that? And I guess more importantly, not just see it, but what do you both know about the continuation of consciousness after death? Okay, the way I see it is the following. Um, every moment, I'm having an experience in every moment. Right now, I'm having the experience of um, doing this interview. When uh, the interview will be over, I may have the experience of having a cup of coffee. Um, last night, I had the experience of giving a lecture in Vancouver, uh, I am is the beginning of every experience. Um, you cannot describe any personal experience without choosing I am having this experience. I'm in love, I'm watching a movie, etc., etc. The experience is in time. All experience is intermittent. Even the experience of sensations in the body is intermittent. The experience of thought is intermittent. The experience
sense of emotion is intermittent, images in the mind are intermittent, all perception is intermittent. But I am is not. I am is present in before the experience, during the experience, after the experience, between experiences. So um, I am is not in time. I am is continuous. I am Deepak Chopra is just a qualia program. It's a concept. It's an assumed identity. Even the brain is a concept. The body is a concept. And the universe is a concept because they are nothing but descriptions in consciousness of events in consciousness, modulations of consciousness. When a baby is there in the beginning, you see a baby and born, the baby has no concepts of, uh, of a tree or a rock or a cloud or uh, its own body. All it experiences is the I am, its consciousness, without knowing those words, and then it experiences uh, sensations, images, feelings, or thoughts, which themselves are modulations of consciousness. Arise in consciousness, are expressed in consciousness, and then subside in consciousness. So you can see just from this very simple um, analytical, contemplative, uh, almost meditation, I actually do this meditation with people, that you can't get rid of I am, that is the awareness, which is always there, no matter what the experience or non-experiences. In deep sleep, um, I am is there. If you scream at somebody who's in deep sleep, then uh, um, they wake up. Or um, if a mother is lying to, next to her baby, uh, and she is in deep sleep, dreamless sleep, um, where she may sense the hunger in her baby. In fact, sometimes if she's, uh, um, you know, very strongly bonded uh, with her baby, her breast may leak when the baby cries with hunger. So deep sleep is a subsiding of experience. So is that a subsiding of the qualia program? for a particular lifetime. Deepak, when you say the qualia program, what, what do you mean by mm-hmm. that? Qualia is a word that has been around since 1920s, was made uh, very popular by the philosopher David Chalmers. So qualia is the quality, very fundamental quality of consciousness, just like quantum is a unit of measurement, qualia is a unit of experience. So you could say it's a thought or a sensation or an image, a sense perception, an emotion. These are the contents of consciousness, which are modulations of consciousness. So there are only three ways of looking at the world. One is that Uh, the dualistic way. There's mind, there's consciousness, and then there's the world of matter. That dualistic view is not tenable in science. If there is mind and then there is matter, how do the, what's the agency of interaction? 
uh, it also violates the basic fundamental laws of thermodynamics. So the dualistic worldview is no longer tenable scientifically. The other two worldviews is it's all matter. But what is matter? If you look at matter, matter is made up of particles, and particles are waves. Particles have units of mass and energy. Waves are waves of possibility. So every subatomic particle is also has a wave-like aspect. That wave-like aspect is its mind, is its mind, and it dwells in the realm of possibilities, which is the one spirit, the one consciousness, if you want to call spirit consciousness. So matter is not made of matter. That was something that Hans-Peter Dürer, who was a friend of mine, who was a director of Max Planck Institute, used to say. Um, Max Planck uh, was quoted as saying, mind is the matrix of all matter. So the monistic materialistic view seems not tenable. Therefore, the only thing that's left is there is only consciousness, period. Birth is not the opposite, sorry, death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. Birth and death as a continuum are life. And that birth and death is happening at every level, subatomic particles are born, and before you can even see them, they, uh, they die. Uh, our stomach cells are born every five days, and they die every five days. Uh, skin cells are born every month, they die every month. Your skeleton is born every three months and dies every three months at the atomic level. So birth and death are present at every level of creation, subatomic, molecular, at the level of organs, at the level of, of material things, rocks and, uh, and other particles, at the level of physical bodies. That is the way the universe is, remains dynamic as a field of consciousness. Um, if there was no death, we would all be doomed to eternal senility. This would be a fossilized universe, and this would be a museum. Uh, I am now speaking to you. That is only possible because sound waves are being born, and they're dying at the same time. My vocal cords are going on, and they're going off at the same time. So once again, um, life is the continuum of birth and death. In biology, there's a phenomenon called apoptosis, programmed cellular death. When that doesn't happen, that's cancer. Cancer is the loss of the memory of death. It's also the loss of the memory of wholeness because your body cells have that memory. That's why they function as a whole. The cells of the body do not function individually. They're part of the wholeness. Every organ is part of the wholeness. Every organism is part of the wholeness. We are part of the wholeness of the universe, which is a conscious being. So Deepak, just one more question, and then I'd like to turn it over to Marilyn. When you talk about this I amness, I think 
Most people can relate to that in terms of feeling some sense of the I am that has been present throughout their entire life, from their earliest memories till now. But if you said, what's your sense of I amness before you were born? What will that I amness be like after death? That's where I think many people go blank. I don't know. I don't know what the I amness was before I was born. How would I know? What is the I amness being um, before you go to sleep or in sleep? When you say, I had a wonderful sleep, I had a deeply restful sleep, what are you referring to? And that I amness can only be experienced in deep samadhi, in deep meditation. And uh, it is the subsiding of every qualia program. Now, by the way, this is also a very interesting, interesting question that you asked because um, I amness, being, existence, awareness, and uh, uh, are all the same thing. So, you know, being has no dimensionality. You ask yourself, where is my being? It has no location either in space or time. And yet, without that being, there would be no experience. Being has no gender, being has no religion, being has no race, and being has no dimensions, either in space or time. In traditional wisdom, in wisdom traditions in the East, you know, that is what is called the Akashic field. One of the big problems in neuroscience right now, as you know, is what is called the hard problem. Where does experience occur? I frequently ask, uh, you know, some of my students, so you're seeing me now, where is the experience of seeing me happening? And they frequently point to their eyes, and then they point out to them that their eyes are 2.5 centimeters by 2.5 centimeters, they're 9 centimeters apart. By the time photons get into the retina, they invert, and the retina itself is curved, so they should be seeing two of me uh, upside down, curved, uh, nine centimeters apart and about 2.5 square centimeters in size. So whatever is happening in the eyes, the experience of seeing me is not happening in the eyes. Then they'll point to their brain, and I'll ask them, how do I fit in their brain? You know, how does the universe fit in the brain? How does the mountain I'm seeing fit in the brain? Whatever is happening in the brain, actually... Uh, Whatever is happening in the brain, the experience is not happening in the brain. If I ask you to imagine a sense sunset on the ocean, uh, you can see a picture. There's no picture in the brain. There are no colors in the brain. There are no sounds in the brain, tastes, smells, textures, what I'm calling qualia. There, nobody's ever seen a thought in the brain. Okay, so what we see are what are called neural correlates. But um, even that is a concept. The whole thing is being and its modulations. And being has no dimension. So where is the experience happening? Where are memories? If I ask you, what did you have for dinner last night? Um, it'll be very difficult for you to, as soon as you remember that experience, something happens in your brain. But if I say, you say, I had my dinner at such and such restaurant in Phoenix, Arizona, and suddenly the image is evoked and the taste is evoked and the memory is evoked, 
None of that is in the brain. So where is memory? Before I ask you the question, it's just like where is that particle before the measurement is made? So every experience is actually happening in a dimensional less domain. And that dimension less domain, which is not in space time, is I am, is existence, is being, is awareness. There is nothing other than awareness and its modulations. Now, of course, when people listen to this, they have two reactions. One is, that's all nonsense. It's pure uh, you know, conjecture. The other is, you can have the experience of non-dimensionality. I have it every day with my practice of meditation. And even at the end of my yoga session, uh, I'm lying in Shavasana, and I can go to that deep, deep, deep domain of awareness where there are no borders, there are no dimensions, there is no space, and there is no time. And if there is one principle of quantum physics that everybody will agree on, only one principle, you know, as you know, there are about 12 to 15 interpretations of quantum mechanics, which is basically one equation, Schrodinger's equation. But if there's one principle that everyone will agree on, because I've tried it with various quantum physicists, physicists it is there are no dimensions. Every, every, and there are no boundaries. Every boundary is notional, period. In the real reality, in the most fundamental reality, there are no boundaries. And when you get that, that is the nature of being. Now, Marilyn, here for both the film and the book, Death Makes Life Possible, you talked to so many different people from different perspectives about this question of the continuation of consciousness. Tell me, what were the most important insights that you gained from these interviews? Well, I just uh, have to say that this topic of death and, you know, our potentials uh, is so rich, and we just heard such an eloquent description of the, the, um, the essence of the, the I am uh, and a way of knowing. And, you know, going back to your initial question about, you know, what do I know, um, you know, I think I know different things from different vantage points. Uh, and I think that the subjective, qualitative um, component, that first-person direct experience, what I'll call the noetic experience, uh, is very rich and very uh, powerful in terms of structuring people's experience of what they know. And as they've had a direct understanding, as Deepak describes through his own meditation practice or some kind of near-death or out-of-body experience, a reincarnation, all these experiences that people report give them a direct first-person kind of knowing. And then there's also obviously the, you know, the essence of what we understand as modern science, which is that objective knowing, that kind of rational, discursive way of engaging. And so when we think about what happens after death, there's also the opportunity to look at what science is wanting to tell us about that uh, and the ways in which science is now having a kind of rapprochement with these spiritual, religious, 
quality, qualitative kind of dimensions. And, you know, something new is being born in that interface where, you know, we now have many, many people who've reported these experiences who have felt direct revelation around their own I amness. And at the same time, there are really interesting bodies of data that are beginning to support from, uh, you know, left brain, Western scientific kind of perspective that there is something about these experiences that may be ontologically true, that may have a kind of reality based in the Western model. And so we can look at things like the research on near-death experiences and the kind of qualities that are shared amongst people who've had these openings or out-of-body experiences. Again, this very clear uh, understanding that we are something more than our physical being. And hearing these descriptions over and over again from people from various traditions, walks of life, ways of being, uh, and then, you know, I think the, the data on reincarnation uh, that's being collected at the University of Virginia, uh, Jim Tucker describes it in the film and in the book, uh, these case studies uh, for years people have been collecting in a very methodical, rigorous way these reports of people who have memories of a previous life. So the I am, in this case, having a kind of attachment to personality and people remembering themselves in uh, a kind of identification with a previous life. And these uh, stories have been investigated and documented and, and provide a very interesting data set for understanding you know, the question of you know, what, what is it that survives, if anything, after bodily death. Uh, and so, you know, my experience of talking to people from different cultures and world traditions has given me a really interesting appreciation for the diverse perspectives. Uh, I, you know, included somebody like Michael Shermer, who represents the uh, materialist, physicalist model. He's an atheist. He's, you know, a skeptic of all of these kinds of conjectures. And, you know, and at the same time, you know, he has had experiences that lead him to question his own assumptions. Is there something more beyond physical death? And all the way through, you know, we talked to people who represented, you know, a, a Muslim imam, a Buddhist practitioner, Hindus, uh, Native Americans, Jewish, Christian, uh, agnostic. All these perspectives offer us an opportunity to appreciate the complexities of our relationship to death and the great cycle of life. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, one of the things that I'd love to hear you both talk more about is in this continuity after death, 
What continues that's individual to each one of us, if you will? Because it's not just this sense of open awareness or being in general. I mean, when you talk about things like reincarnation or when people are contacting deceased relatives, which is also something that's covered in both the film and the book, they're contacting, you could say, an individual soul. Help me understand that. A little while ago, I asked uh, the question, what did you have for dinner last night? Okay, and a memory came back. And where was that memory? Uh, according to at least my own experiences, memories are not in the brain. Memories are in being. And in fact, when, say, people ask me, where do I go when I die? I say, where that uh, pizza is that you had last night as a memory. So what recycles are memories, a matrix of memories. Memories um, are not memories till they're experienced. And of course, once they're experienced, they lead to desire and all kinds of other, other thought processes. The potential memory in uh, Vedanta is referred to as sanskara. So before I ask the question, what you had for dinner, Last night, it was there as a potential, but it wasn't there as a memory. All your memories, and in fact, your entire vocabulary, is in the realm of quantum entanglement right this moment. And then you, you kind of measure out a particular memory as experience, and that then creates context and imagination and desire and experience of what we call karma. So karma, memory, and, 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 and desire is in a sense the software of what people call the soul. At the deepest level, uh, your soul is all the things I am has attached itself to. So um, the deepest level, what I refer to as me, Deepak, is an assumed identity, okay? And that assumed identity is all the I, all that I am has attached itself to. I am the son of so-and-so. I'm a physician. I am uh, a father. I am a husband. I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer. So this creates the context of the assumed identity, which is really the basis of ego personality. But ego personality is the actualization of those memories and those tendencies. Beyond the ego personality are two components of the soul. Uh, again, this is both from experience and from the knowledge that comes from Vedanta and from Kashmir Shaivism. The soul has two components. One is called Jiva, which is the individual soul, which is the I am this and I am that, and I'm not this and I'm not that. And then Atman, which is the unconditioned soul. The unconditioned soul is also called Brahman because it is the ground of being that is at the heart of the whole universe. So at the, at the, the ground of the self, the self of the individual, is also the self of the universe. Now, you can experience both 
and you can have your individual identity for as long as you want it. But in the deeper realm, in the deepest of realms, the individual is part of the matrix of all memories, of all, uh, all, of all experiences, of all desire. So, in a sense, the individuality is um, a projection of of the deeper being, which is, I am the big I am, I am the I am. You know, uh, when I read even the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am, I am the way and the life and the truth, he's referring to the I am or... Um, um, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he's again referring to the I am, which is not in time. So when people have um, uh, experiences of somebody, they're talking, uh, or through a medium, they're contacting somebody who's dead, they're either uh, tapping into the conditioned uh, part of the matrix uh, from their conditioned uh, being, or they're tapping into a collective domain, a matrix. There's no way of telling whether you're experiencing a previous lifetime or whether you're actually tapping into part of that matrix of uh, being which has all possibilities, all memories, all the um, uh, attachments that uh, consciousness has made. Marilyn, anything to add from that about mediumship, if you will, and and what that tells us about this question of the continuity of consciousness? Well, I'm a, a big advocate of embracing the mystery and and acknowledging and appreciating that there are many more questions than there are answers in this territory. I think that it may be, as Rupert Sheldrake says in our film, that it it may be conditioned based on what you believe will happen. And one of the the great um, sort of principles of my work and my my own personal philosophy is this idea of pluralism. Um, not only acknowledging the demographics of all the differences that we have about how we answer those questions, but also a deep appreciation for the fact that there are different answers and that in fact, the answers that we come up with may, in fact, influence what happens next. Maybe there is a way in which, you know, we're tapping into some conditioned part of the matrix that is informed by whatever those life experiences are that take us beyond that. Uh, the traditions talk about the soul or they talk, you know, about different personalities that can come through or even composites of personalities that form over lifetimes. Um, all of these things, I think, are, are real and true for the people who hold them. And it's one of the really interesting things about life in the 21st century is that, you know, we have Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, all sharing the same grocery stores, the same hospitals, the same schools, and yet, in a certain sense, walking around in different kind of ontological bubbles. 
And so at one sphere of our experience, we're interacting, we're having conversations, we're exchanging resources. Uh, and at the other end of our experience, we're living in different belief systems or different constructs of reality. And I think oftentimes, you know, there is an intolerance to alternative perspectives. And I think the great work that we have before us is, you know, fundamentally coming to appreciate that there are core aspects that traditions have in common, and then there are different ways in which our life experiences take different forms, different beliefs, different worldviews. Uh, and so I, I really like to think about the idea of uh, kind of worldview literacy. How is it that we can become literate about the fact that we see the world through a lens of perception? That is our worldview, that that worldview is informed by many things, um, you know, our families, our schooling, our own personal development, um, and that other people have different worldviews and that there are qualities, skills, capacities that we can build and grow to help us to engage each other in this kind of intersubjective field of possibility. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the the great uh, insights that I've had from digging deep into both the it's a bad metaphor, I guess, digging, but um, the film and the book is these conversations that have been so dynamic and so rich across different traditions and different cultures. By the way, Marilyn, my book, um, Life After Death, was based in exactly what you said just now, that consciousness can take any form it uh, conceives or constructs in its imagination and then project it as its reality. So, you know, your belief is basically a form. Uh, your belief is a qualia that takes form. And so you can, you know, right now I'm looking out of the window and looking at a street in Santa Monica in California. That's a projection of my consciousness. And uh, um, I, I, of course, realized that it is in this particular state of consciousness I have projected and we have collectively projected these diverse realities while living in our particular ontological bubble. But um, I definitely, having looked at all the various traditions from the bardos of the Tibetans to the heavens and hells and purgatories of um, of um, uh, the Judeo-Christian traditions to the infinite universes in Brahma, Brahman's consciousness. I believe that all these domains exist as much as Santa Monica exists, that they're all equally real in the sense that they're experiences, um, and they're all equally unreal in the sense that they're projections of consciousness, because there is only consciousness. And so going, you can take both points of view. Yeah, and going back to your, you know, thinking about the kind of quantum realms and the different Correct. interpretations, but right. we can certainly think about all of these ideas as existing in potential Absolutely. and that there are ways in which we kind of collapse those state vectors and, Absolutely. and create different grounds. So they're all equally valid, in other words. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, so it makes it for a very interesting opportunity for us to take our attention and intention and begin to live with mindfulness around what it is that we aspire to and where is it that we're aiming for. Say that again, the last thing. (laughs) I don't like that word, mindfulness. It's awarefulness. Awarefulness is better. That's good. But anyway... Yeah, I think you're right. It's a, it's a term. <laughs> well, we don't have to go there, but anyway. Yeah, yeah, I don't have to go there. It seems to me that part of the impact that you're both hoping will come from the film and the book, Death Makes Life Possible, is to bring a conversation about death into our Western culture in a different type of way. I'm wondering a couple things. One, why you think historically it's been so taboo for people just to talk openly about death and their different viewpoints and just, why is that a taboo? And then it's not taboo at all in many cultures. When my father died, there were three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds and children and all relatives everywhere coming and kissing his body and saying goodbye to his body and all of that. It was absolutely normal, natural. He died in meditation. So, you know, we have made a taboo over here in this culture, in this place and time, because uh, materialistic, uh, uh, materialism dominates, you know, matter is all there is. And that, that's also why we are always trying to accumulate matter. But those, in every spiritual tradition, it's never been a taboo. It's been a celebration. And that's my curiosity is if you were able to envision how death might be celebrated, treated, investigated as a curiosity here in the West, what changes would have to take place both in our healthcare system and how we relate to dead bodies and our rituals? What would have to be different? I think it just would be more loving, more compassionate, more tolerant, more forgiving, therefore more healing. And I think also, you know, this idea that we have a fixation on the material, as Deepak saying, the the emphasis on um, this sense of physicality as the only truth and as the only reality that defines kind of the Western worldview uh, becomes very, you know, questionable. And uh, I think as we find a way to broaden our understanding, which I think is happening as people are, you know, reconciling our spiritual traditions with these kinds of observations coming out of something like quantum physics, you know, we're beginning to see that we are potentials rather than simply the physical. But things that are going to have to change are this kind of fixation on a healthcare system that sees aging and death as failures, when in fact they're a natural part of the cycle of life. And I think as people become more aware of the kind of organic aspects of death, that instead of pumping the body full of formaldehyde and having an experience of a dead body in a very alien form, people can, as you know, as in the tradition in India where there is an engagement with the body, or historically even in the West, you know, the sense that the, the deceased was, was physically present, even if it wasn't in the um, manifest form. 
Uh, and I think so today as we get this kind of global community and we have the opportunity to encounter different traditions, it is inviting particularly the boomers who are now coming to a, a, a revelation really about their own mortality that there will be an opportunity to define the question differently and to approach our own mortality in a fresher, you know, more original form. So I think that we are in a very interesting moment where there is something people are calling it the silver tsunami, which is a kind of wave of um, aging that is covering the planet, starting in Asia, going through Europe, entering America. And, you know, we're seeing that this kind of denial toward our mortality is is no longer possible, and that as the the population ages, as the challenges on our institutions increases, we are really forced to grapple with the kind of inevitability of these these issues. You know, we find a lot of the baby boomers are, um, you know, reaching retirement age themselves, beginning to posit their own existential questions, but also dealing with the, the death of loved ones. And maybe for some of them the first time, really encountering that process of dying and death and understanding what our our parents or our, you know, relatives want or believe. And the fact that we are afraid to have these conversations is is a, a great disservice to everyone because if we have a particular model, if we have a, a perspective, if we have a desire for how we want our end of life to be, and we don't communicate that to anyone because everybody's afraid of hurting somebody's feelings or pushing the boundaries in some way, then we haven't had that most intimate, most authentic conversation. Uh, and so it's a really, I think, propitious moment for both the, the film and the book and, and what I see as, as really a movement to redefine death and for us to have that chance to... Um, think about who am I and what do I really want and believe? And then what are the resources and services that are going to be necessary in order to allow us to treat death as a natural part of the process rather than something so foreign and alienated from our everyday experience? Now, Marilyn, when you talk about something like a movement, Maybe we could call it the death awareness movement, if you will. Tell me a little bit more, what do you mean by that? How would someone participate in something like the death awareness movement? Well, I think the first step is really thinking about it, allowing ourselves the spaciousness to have a thought or reflection about our own mortality. And, and then one of the things I think we've done through the, the book in particular is to shine some light on the different kinds of death awareness practices that there are in different traditions. And so rather than seeing it as the focus of terror and fear and anxiety, we can begin to live into these different kinds of um, encounters with our own mortality. So in the, the Sufi practice, for example, this idea of encountering death awareness and having that be fundamental to our opportunity to then live 
becomes a kind of doorway for people to engage in this death awareness without the fear and anxiety. Um, you know, beginning to really confront that, breathe into it, meditate on it, and ultimately to transform it. Um, you know, so I think that there are different traditions. We can see it in the, the Day of the Dead, for example, where people are celebrating this fine line between living and dying. Um, so people can participate in different kind of cultural perspectives. I think the first step is to reflect and have a kind of personal awareness about what's important to me. Uh, I think that becoming a, a kind of questioning person, a curious person about what, you know, what does it mean to have this sense of identity that is transformative? Uh, and how do I kind of come to terms with that? How do I anchor that? Or how do I let go of my need to anchor it? Uh, that can lead us into practices uh, that can help to foster our death awareness, can help us to set the intention that we're going to move from fear, uh, shift our attention to something that sees death as an opportunity for celebration, as Deepak was saying. Uh, and then really to build new habits so that when fear comes up, we can bring a kind of meditative quality. We can use our breath, um, use our exercise or our communication, our relationship building, all as tools to help us uh, and really to, you know, build kind of a different reaction. So I think that, you know, these are are opportunities, and so I invite people to watch the film and read the book and engage in educational programs that will help to open the conversation, give people a chance to, based on their own personal experiences, their own personal reflection, um, engage other people in these conversations. One of the things we've seen from the film is that it's not only in America that people are having these issues. I have been in Taiwan and Sweden. The film is right now being translated into Japanese, Spanish, German. There is an impulse all over the world right now as people are engaging in this kind of aging process to think about the conversation in a new way. And that's something that I think we're doing right now in the conversation we're having is inviting people to you know, self-reflect, to question, to engage, and then to take some actions that can help to, I think, not only transform us as individuals, but ultimately to help us transform as a, a plant, planetary conversation and a planetary community that is engaged in these deep and powerful questions. Marilyn, tell us all the different kinds of people you interviewed for the film and the companion book to the film, Death Makes Life Possible. What types of people did you interview? Well, Deepak likes to say this is a topic for anyone who's going to die. <laughs> and so we tried to sample a pretty wide selection of the, the population from interviews with kids. Uh, I interviewed a group of 7th and 8th graders who have thought deeply on these topics and were, you know, filled with wisdom and insight to practitioners from a variety of world traditions, uh, most of the major world religions, uh, some of the indigenous practices, some of the emergent practices, 
uh, I talked to scientists representing different disciplines, whether it was psychiatry or physics or medicine, uh, talking to them about what they understand about the death process and also what might be coming next based on the, the data and the evidence. I talked to health and healing practitioners about how it is that we need to heal our relationship to death, but we also need to heal the social institutions that define our um, worldview, define our ways of encountering death. And so seeing people who are really on the front lines of helping to redefine the conversation uh, has been incredibly inspiring. Now, Marilyn, I just have one final question for you. Here you worked on this film project and book over several years, and I'm curious how that work changed you. Yeah, well, I don't think you can spend as much time as I have on this topic (laughs) and had so many conversations with people not to be impacted. And simply thinking about the topic more uh, has allowed me to have more comfort in the conversation. I'm incredibly excited and inspired by, you know, what I'm seeing happening that, you know, wasn't really there three years ago even. So this is, you know, very timely. And I think we are part of something that is birthing right now in the same way that we had the midwifery movement for babies and we moved the idea of childbirth from being pathological to being very natural. I think the same thing is happening in our relationship to death. So we see the death cafes and the death salons, the dining with death, the conversation project, all being part of something that is shifting within us and between us. And I feel grateful that I have had this opportunity to have these deep conversations with people who have a multiplicity of points of view and perspective. And in that process to, you know, deepen my own reverence for the mystery of life. And just now I have been out in my garden and, you know, getting my hands dirty in the soil and pulling the weeds that need to, you know, make space for what will be the garden this season. And and then seeing the little shoots of the pumpkin plants that have somehow seeded themselves uh, and feeling the, the gratitude. So I think death awareness is a spiritual practice, and I feel that it is one that has opened in me as a result of this work. And I want to thank you, Tammy, because you have been somebody who has seen the potentials of this topic, has engaged in it in your own practices, and who, because of that, I think has really helped me personally, um, you know, through the publishing of this book and ultimately this kind of conversation, to be able to contribute in a generative way to something that, you know, so desperately needs to happen. And Deepak, any final words? Yeah, I think also familiarity with the unmanifest and intimacy with the unmanifest actually is very important to be to be familiar and intimate with the rich inner unmanifest, physically unmanifest part of your being is very important. The fact is to the physical as physicality of everything we're dying every day anyway. I mean, I'm dead as a teenager, as a child physically. So, you know, you can't 
if one thing about experience, even in meditation, in the kind of um, meditation on experience, you realize that you cannot hold on to any experience, and you can't get rid of I am at the same time. So that, in fact, um, and and cultivating the experience of being in deep sleep, for example, through practices like yoga nidra, etc., gives people the assurance that uh, um, death is as much a uh, space-time event as is birth. I want to thank Deepak Chopra and Marilyn Schlitz. They have both worked together to create a new film called Death Makes Life Possible, and Marilyn Schlitz has written a practical companion to the film, a book from Sounds True. The foreword is by Deepak Chopra. The book is called Death Makes Life Possible, Revolutionary Insights on Living, Dying, and the Continuation of Consciousness. Deepak Chopra has also written a book called Life After Death, Burden of Proof. Deepak and Marilyn, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for your good work with Death Makes Life Possible. Thank you, Tammy. Bye-bye. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.